Corinthians chapter 11. And before we get there, let me just say to those of you together the uh, Easter egg hunt yesterday for the kids and participated in that, and those of you that went around your neighborhoods this week and uh, invited folks to that, it was, it was a wonderful time yesterday. Um, there were over 100 people here. I think I heard we had 63 kids come out to that. Um, so it was fantastic. It was great to see uh, folks here at the church just interacting with visitors and welcoming them. And uh, it was wonderful to see. So let me just commend everyone. It was a, a great family effort to pull that off. Well done and uh, exciting for me to see that yesterday. So 1 Corinthians 11, uh, we're going to be at the end of the chapter, uh, verse 17 through 34 this morning before we take the Lord's table. And I want you to imagine... This morning, if you just think about if you're coming into church this morning, you get out of your car, you come through the front doors, and you're, it's just a normal Sunday morning, except this Sunday, when you come into the lobby out there, you notice two signs on the back that direct you where to sit based on your income level. So if you make above amount, you're on this side of the auditorium, and if you make below that certain amount, you're supposed to be on this side of the auditorium. I think many of you would probably feel a bit uncomfortable if, if that were the case this morning. Uh, imagine, though, if, if that were the case and you saw those signs and, you know, you sort of begrudgingly came in and sat where you were supposed to sit. Maybe you make less than that certain amount, so you're sitting over here, and then you realize... Word gets around that the folks who make above that certain amount were the ones who decided that they should sort of divide the church up based on economic status. And the, the, the more well-to-do folks over here, they really wanted to sit with themselves, and then the other folks needed to sit on the other side. And they thought that church should be organized based on economic criteria, I mean, that's, it's almost silly to describe that sort of situation, and obviously everyone here would have an issue with that sort of, sort of way the, the church would be set up. But amazingly enough, that is exactly what we find in the Corinthian church, and that is what Paul addresses here in 1 Corinthians 11. They were dividing the church up based on economic criteria, and they were using the Lord's table as a means to do that, to divide the church up. They were using it as an opportunity to flaunt their wealth. And in many ways, they were slipping back into a very worldly mindset, a very pagan Roman mindset was dictating how they lived life within the body of Christ. Now, we'll talk about the Corinthians here in a second. We'll get back to them. But let's talk about our situation here. Let's think about ourselves. I don't know about you, but sometimes in my experience, when I come in and I know it's the Lord's table on a particular Sunday morning, you know, I, I don't really think a whole lot about it. And it can sort of turn into a, a ritual that I do once a month. And I don't put a lot of thought into it. I don't prepare for it spiritually and mentally as I'm coming into worship, as I'm sitting during the preaching, thinking about the Lord's table. I, I don't really put a lot of time and effort into it. And the reality for us is that the Lord gave his church two ordinances. 
Supper and Baptism. And both of those ordinances are to be practiced regularly, and they both are chocked full of meaning and significance for the church. And so we don't want to be casual about the way that we take the Lord's Supper, and we want to come to this time together this morning, and we want to learn from the Corinthian church. We want to learn from their mistakes so that we don't duplicate their mistakes, and so that we we celebrate the Lord's Supper appropriately as it should be done. And so this morning we want this table that we're going to take to reshape the way that we perceive ourselves. We want to come to this table and have it influence our identity. And Paul wants to make it very clear to the Corinthians as well as to the church down through the ages, including us, that the Lord's Supper can't merely be a ritual that we participate in. The Lord's Supper has to be something that shapes the reality of our lives. The Lord's Supper obviously is tied to the gospel. It's a way that you'll see we proclaim the gospel, and so there are certain realities of the gospel that have to shape the way we live and the way we function in the church body and outside of the church body. And so this morning, I want to show you three ways. Actually, Paul's going to show these ways to us from 1 Corinthians 11. But I want to show you three ways that the Lord's Supper will reshape our identities and actions. All right? So that's where we're going this morning. Three ways the Lord's Supper will reshape and actions, all right? And the first one of these is found in verses 17 through 22. We got a new one of these clickers, and I promise it was working earlier this week. There it is. All right, so it's found in verses 17 to 22, and this first way is that the Lord's Supper resists our divisive Attitudes. It resists our divisive attitudes. Now, if you've ever studied the Corinthian letters before, particularly 1 Corinthians, you know that most of this letter is spent with Paul confronting different issues within the church. I mean, he goes through all these different struggles that they're having. He confronts divisions within the church. He confronts sexual immorality within the church. He confronts idol worship and many other issues that are going on within the church at Corinth. And here in chapter 11, he deals with a pretty major issue that has come up in the church when they celebrate the Lord's table, the Lord's Supper. And the bottom line for Paul here is that the actions of the people at the church in Corinth are not lining up with the reality of the gospel. Their lives are not displaying properly the truths of the gospel. And so verses 17 through 22 give us what the problem is here in the church. Their description of the problem at the church in Corinth. Look with me at verses 17 through 19 here. He says this, But in the following I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. He's kind of being facetious there in verse 19 and saying, well, of course there need to be factions so that those who are the real deal can be recognized in the church. And you can see in verse 18, he says, I hear that there are divisions among you. 
So the church is not functioning in unity. So what was the actual problem that was going on here? Well, you have to understand a little bit about the way the church was organized in the city of or in the city of Corinth during this time. They would typically gather together. They didn't have buildings like we do. They would typically gather together at the home of a wealthy person within the church. And these wealthy folks could accommodate, you know, 40, 50, maybe more people in their homes. They would have big rooms where they could have everyone gather together and meet together. And so it made sense for the people to gather at a richer person's house. Many of the poorer folks in the church lived in crowded apartments in the city, and so they just didn't have room to host people. So the rich folks would have the members into their home for a worship service, and their worship services included the Lord's Supper every time they would gather. And what would happen here is that when they would gather for the Lord's Supper, the rich folks in the church would typically invite other rich people into their home, into sort of maybe an upper room that they would have, and they would eat together, and they would have better food, better drinks, more expensive fare at their meal, and then they would literally have the poorer people in the church gather in the courtyard outside. And so they would have a separate meal there while the rich folks would meet inside and gather together. And so you would find the rich people gorging themselves on expensive food and keeping the poor people outside for for the meal. Look what Paul says in verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Verse 21, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. So the rich people are gorging themselves while the poor people can't afford good food. They're eating outside in the courtyard. One author said this about the problem here at the church in Corinth. Got a little lag here. I'll start reading it to you and hopefully it'll come up. To be specific, this behavior shames the church because rather than depicting the need common to all, rich and poor, slave and master, male and female, Jew and Gentile, the need for the gospel that is proclaimed in the supper, the observance of what seem to amount to class distinctions at the supper enacts the socioeconomic distinctions of the pagan Roman culture. This behavior of the Corinthians shows that their identity has not been reconfigured by the gospel. In other words, they're acting like Romans, pagans, rather than acting like the gospel has reshaped their lives. There's a couple things you need to notice about the sin pattern here I want to point out to you that Paul says. Look at verse, verse 20. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper that you eat. Basically, Paul's saying, you can't act in such a divisive condescending manner and still claim to be celebrating the Lord's Supper when you come together. You can't claim to be a participant in Christ's work on the cross and act this way. The two don't go together. We'll look more at this later when we get to the second way that the Lord's Supper reshapes us in verses 23 and 26 through 26. But by definition, What we're going to celebrate this morning, the Lord's table, is a unifying activity for the church. 
It's a unifying practice for the church body. It puts us all on the same level playing field. Listen to 1 Corinthians 10, just a chapter back, verses 16 and 17. Paul talks about the significance of the Lord's table. Verse 16. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation or a fellowship, is the word there, in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation or a fellowship in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. By participating in the Lord's Supper, this is a unifying activity for the church. It shows that we're all participants in the work of Christ and that we're all one family and one body together. That's what we signify when we take this table together on Sunday mornings. The Corinthians here were not living this out at all. They were living more like pagan Romans than they were like believers. They were economic status than on their identity in Christ. Look at what Paul says also in verse 22 of chapter 11. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's like, why are you doing this in the church gathering? Why don't you have a feast with the rich folks together away from the church body? Look what he says here. Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. I think it's interesting what he says in the middle of the verse. Do you despise the church of God? When we don't allow the realities of the work of Christ to shape our lives and our relationships with one another, then we're despising God's church when we live that way. The group of people who are gathered here this morning belong to God. They are his, you all are his church. We are his church. And he cares deeply for his bride. And Paul's going to take up a defense for the bride of Christ and not allow pagan Roman thinking to alter the relationships within the body here. I read it before, but look again at how he ends this in verse 22. What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? Are you doing a good thing? No, I will not commend you in this. So the Corinthians are acting like pagans. They're despising the church of God. They're not aligning their practices with the truths and the realities of the gospel. So what's the remedy for that? Paul's very good here at pointing out the problem as he's been doing throughout Corinthians. But Paul is also very, very good at giving them the cure for their problem, the remedy for it. And that brings us to our second way. The Lord's Supper will reshape our identities and actions. Certainly the Lord's Supper resists our divisive attitudes, our worldly attitudes, but it also requires our Christ-centered announcement. It requires our Christ-centered announcement. One of the things that I love about Paul in his letters, and particularly in 1 Corinthians, I love how he addresses problems with good theology. He doesn't just say, oh, do this. He actually goes back and he teaches 
about God and about the work of Christ. And he teaches the gospel. He gives the people clear gospel instruction. So you saw the problem in verses 17 to 22. And now he moves directly into doctrinal teaching regarding that problem and how to remedy that problem. And I think it's amazing that he goes right to instruction regarding the Lord's table. That should show us just how significant this ordinance is in our lives. This ordinance, as we do it correctly, has the power to influence the way we live our lives, the way we act toward one another, the way we live out gospel realities. That's how important what we're going to do this morning is. It's not a casual thing that we partake in. Now, I know you could be sitting here this morning and you're thinking, okay, I hear what you're saying, and I know what the Corinthians did was was pretty lame, <laughs> the way they were acting. I see that, but come on, I I would never divide up based on income status. I don't do that. I don't treat people in the church body that way. And what Paul would say to us is, yes, that, that could be true for you in this one particular area, but each of us have areas in our lives where we're not aligning our identities and our actions with the gospel. And so Paul would say, you may have that area down, but use this time, this understanding of the Lord's table to realign your thinking and your actions with the work that Christ did. That's what this time is for. The practice of the Lord's Supper is to help us to consistently remember these truths of the gospel. And it's to remember these truths every month when we come together so that they reshape us. And now we begin to perceive ourselves as those who are bought by the blood of Christ and who are unified in the body together. And that becomes the reality that we live out of, not the worldly ways of thinking that the Corinthians were so influenced by. That's what Paul's looking for. So what does Paul teach here in verses 23 to 26 about the Lord's table? What does he teach about this that we will partake in in a few minutes? Look at verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. It's interesting that Paul says this was a tradition that had been going on in the churches, and it was something that he received that had been originally done on the night when Christ Jesus was betrayed. Does anybody know, you don't have to answer, but does anybody know what night that was? What was significant about that night? It wasn't just a random evening that Christ decided to institute the Lord's Supper. He and the disciples were already together celebrating something on that evening. The Lord's Supper was originally held on the night of Passover, the night when Jesus was betrayed. Now, if you know anything about your Old Testament and if you know anything about the Passover, the Passover had been, for generations, had been a meal which was to remember and to think about and to celebrate Israel's redemption from slavery in Egypt. So every year when the Jews families would gather together, they would celebrate the Passover, and they would look back and they would say, oh, God, Yahweh rescued us from slavery. And they would remember that. And they would rejoice in that. 
And in the Old Testament, here's something you you want to understand. In the Old Testament, the exodus from Egypt was the quintessential act of redemption. That defined what redemption looked like for Jewish people. They would look back and they would go, that is how God brings about salvation. This is how Yahweh works. And so when they're celebrating the Passover, they're looking back and they're going, this is the way that Yahweh saves us. You can see this in the Psalms and in the prophets. They're always looking back to the Exodus and saying, this is the way God redeems his people. And that very reason is why Jesus enacted this and initiated the Lord's Supper on the night of Passover, the night before he died. What he was doing in that night was he was changing the feast of Passover to now focus our attention on the second exodus rather than the first exodus. And that second exodus, that second redemption would take place through his death. That's exactly why in 1 Corinthians 5, Paul calls Jesus our Passover lamb. Because he understands that Jesus is the lamb that was slain and his blood is what redeems us and not any longer the lamb whose blood was spread on the door that could only save them for a night and couldn't save them from an eternity in hell and from sins that had piled up. That's why Paul calls Jesus that. He takes the place of the lamb whose blood was applied to the doorpost. And so in the Lord's Supper, the focus moves from the Passover meal to the death of Christ and to his work. It moves from God's redemption of Israel out of Egypt to the second exodus, which is Christ's redemption of us from the slavery of sin. And so what would happen in the Passover meal is that the Jews would take these various elements and every element in the meal, everything they would eat was weighted with significance. And each time they would take something new, the head of the household would explain to them, look, this is in the the cup. This is what we're remembering. In the bread that we're eating, the unleavened bread, this is what we're remembering about the Passover. And so everything they would partake of was weighted with significance. And in the same way, Jesus institutes this meal and everything we partake of is weighted with significance. Look at what he says in verses 24 and 25. And when he had given thanks, he broke it, the bread, and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Verse 25, in the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So Christ's death is the second exodus. It replaces the Passover meal, but it also inaugurates the new covenant. That's what he says in verse 25 about the cup. It's the new covenant in my blood. The new covenant was sealed with Christ's blood as the Passover lamb. Jeremiah 31 verses 31 through 34 tells us about the new covenant. Zach talked about this this morning in Sunday school. Fantastic job. But listen to the benefits that come from this new covenant. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. Listen to these benefits. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And from the least of them to the greatest, you can see why Paul had such a problem with the way the Corinthians were acting from the least of them to the greatest declares the Lord. And then here's the kicker. This is why all these benefits come to us. It's all based on these last couple of lines. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. All the benefits that are described and that come to you and I in the new covenant come to us because our sins have been fully and finally wiped away and forgiven. And if you read the book of Hebrews, you know this is where the new covenant is better than the old covenant. It's not that the old covenant was bad, but this is better. This is better because you don't have to sacrifice a lamb every year. You don't have to spread the blood on your doorpost every year. This is better because Jesus Christ entered that heavenly sanctuary once and for all, and his blood forgives our sin as the true Passover lamb. And it brings us all the benefits that come from the new covenant. And so Paul here says, He asks these people, the Corinthians, how can people who have received this redemption, how can they treat one another in the way that you all are treating one another? How can this be? And his answer to them is, they can't. And his answer to us is, we can't live this way. When you come to this table, when you celebrate this table, This is the work that was done for you. You can see in verse 24 where he says that. This is my body, which is for you. When we see the work that Christ did on our behalf, we cannot remain unchanged. And that's what this table is about. It's about perceiving that work anew all the time so that it changes us and shapes us. And it reshapes our identity and it reshapes our action. Look at verse 26. Here's what Paul says about the ongoing practice of the Lord's table. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. We proclaim Christ's death by participating in this table. This is a continual action that we do. So what does that mean? What does it mean to proclaim Christ's death in the Lord's table? One author said this, this means that in eating the bread and drinking the cup, the Corinthians were by faith claiming for themselves the benefits of the death of Christ and identifying themselves with the body of Christ, the church. To proclaim the Lord's death is to celebrate his life-giving sacrifice of himself, looking back to the cross And at the same time, forward to his return until he comes. Verse 26. I love that. Until he comes. We look back 
when we celebrate this table, we remember, but we also look forward and we look ahead with hope. The same one who gave his blood, who died, who rose again, this one will return to receive his bride to himself. And so today, when you partake of this table, look back, be grateful, be changed by what you're doing today, but look forward and anticipate that Christ is going to return for his bride. So we've seen the problem at Corinth and that the Lord's Supper resists our divisive attitudes. And we've seen the clear teaching that Paul gives to us regarding the Lord's Supper as the Passover reconstituted around the death of Christ as the Passover lamb. We've seen the importance of the Lord's table So what does this practically mean for us? How does this flesh itself out in our lives today? And that's what Paul gets to in the remaining part of this section. The third way the Lord's table reshapes our identity and actions is found in verses 27 to 34, and it remedies our unworthy activities. It remedies our unworthy activities. Because of what we've just talked about, because our lives are to be proclaiming, announcing that the realities of the gospel have impacted the way I live, have shaped me, because we're announcing to the world that we've been forgiven by Christ when we partake of this table, there's a real danger in approaching this table flippantly and casually. Look at verse 27. Whoever therefore... So based on what he's just said, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Now look down at verse 29. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. Verse 30. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. So what do we do? Those are serious words that Paul gives to us. Don't drink in an unworthy manner. So how do we handle this? Look at verse 28. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Look at verse 31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, when we allow him to critique our lives, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So what is this, what is Paul asking for here? What does he mean when he says examine ourselves? There's kind of two sides to this that I want to navigate this morning to help you as you approach the Lord's table. First of all, I would say this is not calling you to a guilt-driven introspection that wallows in despair over your sin. That's not what Paul is calling us to here. But what he is calling us to is an honest assessment of our lives. We want to judge ourselves. We want to look at our identity and what is shaping the way we live. We want to look at our actions and see if they are aligning themselves with the work of Christ. Does my life consistently confirm my claim to be a partaker of the new covenant? That's what we're asking ourselves this morning. Each time that you partake of the Lord's table together, that we do that, you have the opportunity to remember Christ's sacrifice and you have the opportunity to examine your daily life 
in light of his word. So don't enter this time lightly. Don't enter it casually. But at the same time, don't allow yourself to get caught up into every detail of every sin that you've ever committed and try to remember all of those things. Consider your life. Act on what you need to and rejoice in the blood of Christ. Look what Paul says in verse 33. He tells them, act on what you need to. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. Act appropriately as it regards the gospel. Let the the experience of taking this table and the truths that you're remembering shape your life. Change the way you live if you examine yourself and you see that that needs to happen. When you come together to eat, don't act like you've been acting. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. And then he talks about the other things that he's going to address with them. Examine your life. Act on what you need to. Let the gospel reshape the way you think. And then ultimately, here's the point. Trust the blood of Christ. Rejoice in the work that he's done, that it will cover and cleanse you of all of your sin. Don't wallow in guilt and introspection. The entire point here is to celebrate the gift of forgiveness of sins. Romans 8.1, there is no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. So examine and celebrate. That's what we're to do this morning. And let me just give you, before we, we enter into this time, let me just give you some broad implications of this for our lives together. Here's some ways that this may impact our worldly thinking. Then we'll get to the Lord's table. First, you saw in this passage how much Paul emphasizes the unity of the body. We read in 1 Corinthians 10 that participating in this is a fellowship in the body of Christ. There's a partnership that we all have together because of the work of Christ. And you'll notice that I keep saying the word together because that's what we're celebrating when we celebrate communion. That's why we do this in the church gathering together with one another. The reality is that you and I need one another in the church. Listen, some of you have strengths that I will never, ever have. And I have weaknesses that are complemented by those strengths. And that is true for every person in this body. We're here. You are here because of your strengths, because of the ways you can serve the body. But you are also here because of your weaknesses, because you need others within the church body to shore up those weaknesses, to help you see those weaknesses, help you see where your life doesn't align with the gospel. And that's the beauty of the church body. And that's what Paul is celebrating here. There's participation and fellowship and a coming together. And that really is the major issue that Paul has with the Corinthians. There was division in the church. They were thinking and acting like worldly people. Let me say, God values the unity of his people. Read John chapter 17. He wants his people to dwell together in peace and in grace and in harmony. And every time you and I celebrate the Lord's table, we are proclaiming that reality to each other and to the world. We're in this thing together and we want to be in this thing together. The second thing I'll say, the implication about that we get from the Lord's table here is 
Do you remember what Paul said in verse 24? Look back there quickly. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you, for you. Christ's death is fundamentally outward looking and self-sacrificing. He died for the good of others. And so there can be no way to claim to have participated in this, in the new covenant, and for us to be fundamentally self-centered people. Taking the Lord's table confronts our self-centeredness. And being self-centered is very difficult to see because by definition, you're looking in at yourself. It's like, it's like having cream cheese on your face and you can't see it, but everybody else can. And everybody's going, ooh, ah. and you're completely unaware of it. And how wonderful is it when you have that cream cheese on your face and a friend says to you, you have cream cheese on your face. And they point out that reality to you and then you can clean yourself off and you know what's been wrong. That is exactly what needs to happen in the body of Christ. We are all self-centered to a certain degree and we need one another to say, you have cream cheese on your face. You are being self-centered. And we need one another to point out those issues to us. And the great example of that and the one who defines how we should live for one another is Jesus Christ. His body was broken for you. He was not concerned with self, but he gave of himself for our good. So let's mimic that and let's celebrate that in the Lord's table. And then the last thing I'll say by way of implication for us is this is a time of rejoicing. This is a wonderful, wonderful thing, a gift that we've been given. Think about what we're celebrating this morning. Think big picture. You and I were born enslaved to sin. Just like the Israelites were enslaved in Egypt. You and I were enslaved to sin and we had no ability to redeem ourselves from that. And Jesus Christ came and his body was broken and his blood was spilt for us. And now you and I are partakers of the bounty of gifts that we have received from him in the new covenant. We benefit from his work. We are free from sin. We are forgiven. We have hope. We rejoice in one another and in our future in heaven. Nothing could be better than that. That is good news. So this morning, take an opportunity to rejoice and to remember what the Lord has done. Let's pray. Father, we are we're amazed at your word. We're amazed at how clear it is, how helpful it is to our lives, how it confronts our self-centeredness, our disunity, our divisions, our worldly thinking. And I pray this morning that you would continue to allow your word to work on us, Lord. We don't want to stay the same. We want the truths of the gospel to reshape us, to change our identity over time, to change the way we think, the way we live. So do that this morning, Lord, as we partake of the Lord's table. So thankful for your goodness and your grace. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.